we had this personal computer revolution 30 years ago or whatever, which changed the relationship between the individual and technology and, and created new ways for, for people to connect with each other and you know, provided a new kind of sovereignty to individuals over their computing needs. And the way I think about blockchains is they are like community computers, right? Each blockchain is essentially logically a single computer. That phenomenon of the community computer, I think will have a similar kind of impact on society as the personal computer did, which was obviously massive. This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Bandless Conversations podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. These conversations help us make sense of what's coming next with platform business models, the dynamics of marketplaces, business ecosystems, and much more. Join me, my regular co-host Sina Heikila, and other guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. Hello, everybody. A quick intro to our uh, episode today with Ethan Bookman. Um, crazy weeks. Uh, we're kind of living through uh, many of the disruptions and changes that we have anticipated in our 2020 white paper. If those of you that have been reading it uh, will remind that we spoke about, for example, among other things, how the geopolitics of you know the economy basically have, are changing and we hinted towards a, a multipolar world and uh, what we're seeing essentially is the consolidation you know through very dramatic events of um, kind of a new polarities uh, in the world you know for example you know Russia just announced today uh, and we are 7th of March that they are going to disconnect the internet from the rest of the internet, a little bit like the Chinese internet uh, works. So, so essentially, we're living through this, and uh, um, you know, that's those weeks. These weeks are you know very much uh, challenging for everybody. So, uh, stay strong uh, and uh, keep focus as much as possible on on doing great work, and we hope to offer some good inspiration uh, starting from today. Stina. Yeah, it's almost like. You want to call back everyone that you have had on the podcast to to talk about this, no? To to some extent, we have these great thinkers, these great entrepreneurs, doers uh, from all over the world who are really working on building alternatives. And I think this moment where we all feel so lost in a way, uh, and still, like you mentioned, there are things, there are currents that maybe we have been more or less willing to to acknowledge and. And the polarization happening in at many fronts between within countries and so on. So I, I think the glimpse of hope that that we can that we can have in this moment is that there are people working, you know, day and night to try to create uh, a new the new normal or like the not yet that we have also commonly now cited in our white paper. And one of them definitely, so Ethan Bookman, who we had the pleasure to talk to before this unraveling happened. Uh, Ethan is the co-founder of the Cosmos Network, and he serves as CEO of Informal Systems, which is a member-driven workers' cooperative building software that basically enables trustworthy relationships between protocols and people with the aim of uh, them to flourish. And uh, he also serves as president of the Interchain Foundation, which funds and coordinates development of public goods in the Cosmos ecosystem. Uh, so I think it was a very interesting chat because Ethan is so, besides his very 
technological knowledge and really seeing this new frontier of of computing and 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 blockchain and so on he has a very sensitive view on um the political economy and on how this is playing out really in the real world also linked with geophysics so really like the boundaries of organisms and and really seeing this big uh, picture in such a clear way so this was a great chat i mean i think i really appreciate uh, from from this chat uh, the fact that eaton refers to uh, the need we have uh, to organize at uh, multiple scales and um, he appeals for uh, you know basically organizations uh, mimicking the multi-scale variety that the natural world uh, achieves right the natural ecosystems and um, this really connects with the idea that uh, um, that is is bringing forth with the the the, the cosmos project and this idea of uh, multiple blockchains millions of blockchains versus one blockchain only that uh, essentially entails of course if she, if the future of blockchains is to have multiple uh, blockchains connected interconnected with each other each community running its own community computer has uh, eaten calls it, calls them uh, the blockchains i think this means that we have to be to be actively involved in designing and running such uh, complex organizations. So again, uh, as a, a wrap-up of this introduction, I think uh, uh, there is a call uh, for us to consider ourselves as active players, not just consumers of blockchain technology, but very much a producer of that. Uh, and so really enjoy this conversation because Ethan is a great thinker, great doer, He is doing great progress, both with his own uh, informal systems organization, with the Interchain uh, Foundation, Cosmos Project. You're probably going to be uh, needing some of these technologies in your future. So uh, stay tuned uh, during this conversation and for the future ones. And I hope, I hope you will enjoy the episode. So welcome back, uh, everybody, to the Boundless Conversations podcast. Today uh, with me there is my usual uh, co-host, Stina Heikila. Hello, everybody. And uh, uh, we also have Ethan Buchmann. Uh, Ethan, uh, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. Um, so that's really great to have you, actually. And we are um, not just excited, but I would say also full of questions and ideas that we wanted to share with you. So hopefully uh, we're going we're gonna to make it on, in, on time for everything we wanted to discuss. But let's uh, start from uh, one initial point, right? So we have been re- listening to, to some of your uh, the shows that have been hosting you. We have been reading your writings and uh, You, you you seem to have this idea that uh, we have to leave a transition between uh, what I would call a naive idea of industrialism, so something that uh, you know it's based on control, you know, essentially um, the illusion of control, I would say, and uh, pl- planning and uh, mass scale and so on, um, into something that uh, you called embedded uh, cooperativism, uh, which maybe you can explore a bit in, in this first uh, answer. But I would like to ask you to maybe uh, double-click, especially on uh, why uh, this idea of the blockchain and uh, especially your idea of a plural, uh, I would say, uh, blockchain uh, as a role in this transition. Sure, yeah. Uh, there, there's a lot to 
a lot to unpack there. I can start with the second part, uh, you know, why I think blockchains are important or, or, or why many blockchains are important. The way I understand blockchains in, in some respect, they're a natural evolution of databases and, and computing. And you can think about blockchains as the natural step in moving from architecturally decentralized, architecturally fault tolerant systems that we've had, you know, for, for decades towards more politically uh, decentralized or multi-stakeholder system. So moving from, you know, fault tolerant databases running uh, in a single administrative domain by a single company towards fault tolerant databases that are run by uh, many entities or, or many participants. And that's really sort of where blockchains fit, I think, in the context of the history of computing. And that's important as we move towards, you know, uh, a more interconnected and, and, and complicated world where you know uh, people are less likely to to want to trust single large uh, entities or corporations who have abused our trust you know over and over and over again, um, and and so arguably you know we should be moving towards something that is a bit more multi-stakeholder uh, that provides you know more reasons and more guarantees for why why people should trust um, the systems that they build and rely on. So to some extent, you're talking about uh, the need to, so, sorry for interrupting you, but no, to please. some extent, you're talking about uh, the fact that it's not just a technological advancement, it's something that is due to the political so, to political reasons, so like essentially the structure of trust that needs to change and, and an institutional architecture as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why blockchains are having their moment. The impact and the use case is political, but the, there are underlying technical advancements there just wasn't historically the kind of impetus, let's say, the sociopolitical or socioeconomic impetus for those technical solutions to be deployed into production. So, for instance, uh, Byzantine fault tolerance, which is the kind of fault tolerance that we say blockchains provide, and that's, that's a, a word that goes back to the early 80s when Leslie Lamport coined it to talk about uh, you know, systems that are resilient to arbitrary kinds of failure, not just a machine crashing or going offline or being delayed, but to it actually behaving arbitrarily, potentially maliciously, right? You call that Byzantine fault tolerance. And that's really the kind of fault tolerance that blockchains provide. But there was never really an impetus to deploy those kinds of systems, even though the technology, you know, and, and the theory is, is decades old. It wasn't until, let's say, post-2008 that the, the trust in kind of institutions had eroded sufficiently that it actually made sense to deploy these kinds of Byzantine fault tolerance systems in, in production. And now we're seeing them you know, explode uh, across the world, essentially. Well, so that, that's one sort of way to think about, about blockchains and, and you know, what, why they're sort of having a moment you know, currently and, and understanding them in the historical landscape. Another way I like to, I like to think about them is you know, we had this uh, personal computer revolution you know, 30 years ago or whatever, which, which changed the relationship between the individual and technology and, and created new ways for, for people to connect with each other um, and, you know, provided a new kind of sovereignty to individuals over their, over their um, computing needs. And the way I think about blockchains is they are like community computers, right? Each blockchain is essentially logically a single computer. Sometimes, you know, people make fun of them. They're like, oh, they only have as much processing power as like a calculator, right? Which is true to, to some extent, but, but nonetheless, the idea that they're a, a single uh, computing machine, logically a single machine, even though they're distributed across many physical machines, they all comprise to make a, a single machine that is owned and, and controlled by some community, usually a community of token holders, however it's, however it's structured. But that phenomenon of the community computer 
uh, I think will have a similar kind of impact on society as the personal computer did, uh, which was obviously um, obviously massive. And you know, you could argue whether whether it's been a force of good or or, or a force of bad. There are of course many you know negative uh, side effects of personal computers and our you know obsession with our devices. But that's the kind of uh, that's the, the kind of framing uh, that I like for thinking about what blockchains are is that they're this kind of community computer with the same kind of revolutionary potential that the that the personal computer had. And in the same way that the personal computer was kind of a, a revolution on a previous conception of um, you know, mainframe computing, obviously computing in itself was, was a very powerful concept. And, you know, all these uh, massive mainframe computers uh, were built. And, you know, when, when people started making personal computers, the, the sort of common notion was, oh, that's silly. Why does everyone need a personal computer? That doesn't make any sense. Like, you have this mainframe, all of the world's computing needs can just be taken care of by, you know, the mainframe in, in IBM's basement. And, and, and that's enough, right? And of course, that's not the direction we went, we ended up with this proliferation of devices. Now everyone has, you know, a personal computer or multiple of them, and and they all they all connect to each other over this interoperable network that we call the internet. And in a very similar way, what what the Cosmos Project and and sort of you know the, the approach that uh, that we've been following to blockchain philosophy uh, is really about is is a similar kind of conception of community computers, right? So you have these blockchains, they're powerful in their own right, they're this sort of natural evolution of, of database designs, if you will, but there are people, you know, for, for a while, people thought, oh, we only need one or some small number of blockchains, and, and that will take care of all of the world's computing needs, right, or, or blockchain needs, right? So, like, Ethereum initially was pitching itself as the world computer, as if the Ethereum blockchain would be somehow sufficient for all of the world's um, blockchain needs. And, of course, that's not the reality in which today, and, and Cosmos has played a significant role in that. We felt that for the same reason that mainframes weren't sufficient for the world's computing needs, and we have this proliferation of personal computers connected over uh, an interoperable network that is the internet, then that was really the sort of key ideas behind Cosmos to really enable every community, every group, every set of people uh, or organizations that wanted one to have one of these shared computing devices, what we call a blockchain, to be sovereign over them, that's the word we use, to be able to control their their fate and determine, you know, what programming languages use, what applications are there, and and so on. And yet, for all of these sovereign, independent blockchains to still be interoperable with one another. You spoke about so sovereign computing platforms. Let's say, right? So this idea that. Uh we are entering this moment where uh, you have these local systems that are sovereign, that have their own shared computing in, around a shared uh, trust system, let's say. And I'm interested to understand a bit more of uh, what is the, the relationship between your idea around multi-chain interoperability uh, that is central to Cosmos, essentially, right? The interchain idea. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, this idea of... Uh, multiple local systems that uh, interact with each other, right? Because if, if we sp speak about, uh, on one side, you speak about embeddedness and, sure. and sovereign sovereignty. And so how does it connect with interconnection and exchange and global discussions and, and so on? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And um, so my, a lot of this comes out of my background studying biophysics. That was sort of my... Um, you know, where, where I got my start and, and my training thinking about the thermodynamics of organisms. And 
you know, how it's possible that organisms emerge and sustain themselves in a, you know, hostile adversarial, adversarial universe that's always running down. You know, we have these thermodynamic laws, you would expect, you know, entropy is always increasing, you have all this dissipation, how is it possible that organisms run themselves up in, uh, in, in the face of that? And, and it turns out, if you sort of investigate this, it turns out organisms actually, they don't contravene the second law of thermodynamics at all. They are a direct consequence of it. Uh, if you understand them in terms of their ability to better dissipate the energy that is sort of driving them, then would be possible without them, right? And so you, you can start to develop a, a notion of organisms as sustainable systems by the way in which they, they capture any energy and cycle it uh, within their structure. And so you get this very significant structural uh, patterning where sustainability ends up being intimately tied up with how the organism or, or the system captures energy and recycles it internally in these, uh, in these sort of local flows that are coupled together, right? And so the growth happens by finding new ways uh, for energy to flow in a closed loop that sort of reinforces the other closed loops. And so you get this sort of sustainable growth pattern that you can contrast with an unsustainable growth pattern, which looks more like a tornado or a hurricane or a sort of vortex where you just have energy sort of spinning out in all directions rather than closing in on itself in, in, in a sustainable loop. Um, and so it was that sort of structural localism, we could say, and, you know, the, the information, you know, an understanding of the information that is carried within such a structure about the environment, right? And so in, in order to store energy effectively, you actually have to have a representation of your environment and its dynamics and the sort of patterns of energy flow that you're responding to and, and storing to. And that structural representation is a local representation, right? There's no, I mean, you're responding to your sort of local, um, your local environment. And so that sort of, you know, biophysical framing of the meaning of sustainability, I think really, really set me up for thinking in terms of localism and information theory and the ability to process information and the bandwidth necessary to process information and sort of turn me against uh, or maybe very suspicious of large centralized, you know, bureaucratic institutions that just from a purely information theoretic standpoint, don't possibly have enough or can't possibly have enough bandwidth to adequately or accurately, you know, process and respond to information in, in a complex dynamic, you know, changing in environment. And so, you know, if you study ecology or theoretical ecology or just living systems in general, you find this, you know, profound, uh, localism where you have, you know, species or, or, or um, you know, uh, structures within an organism responding in very particular ways to the driving signals uh, around them. And so, you know, that sort of uh, motivated me to try to apply that reasoning to our socioeconomic systems and, and, and you know, looking at, uh, you know, I started to find certain um, thinkers who sort of resonated with that. Uh, Nassim Taleb, for instance, and his ideas on on anti fragility and and localism, um, and uh, obviously Eleanor Ostrom and, and and her husband, they thought a lot about uh, uh, localism and and local practices for for governing the commons and this sort of you know polycentricity, right? This idea that uh, that things should happen at the appropriate scale and that reality is is a multi scalar uh, a multi scaled phenomenon, right? And and you have many different scales of experience and many different scales of patterns and the structures we form 
ought to be sort of scale aware, aware of the right scale, right? And so not everything, you know, that, that this isn't to say, for instance, that there's no role for the nation state, right? There certainly is a role for the nation state, but it's a particular one that is attentive to the scale that the nation state operates at. And there are certain things that make sense at the scale of the nation state, and there are certain things that don't, right? So for instance, you know, defense is sort of a very common feature of, of nation states, and, and that may be something that makes a lot of sense to operate at the level of the nation state. But there are many other aspects of, of society and of our lives that probably don't make sense to be uh, governed and operated at such a at such a large scale and would be you know much more effective if they were handled at sort of a more local scale, perhaps with standards set by the nation state. And we see that somewhat in sort of, you know, federalist systems and, you know, provinces and, and, and states and so on. But uh, even those, uh, you know, provinces and states tend to be uh, quite large. And, you know, we could probably take this further towards cities and, and even individual communities having more say, more control, more, you know, sort of sovereignty over their own social economy. I mean, I mean there, there aren't many layers, right? So you can think of the national state, and then you can think of a city, maybe a neighborhood. Uh, maybe you can think in terms of... Uh, bioregions. Exactly. Yep. Uh, you can think in many ways. I think the interesting and fascinating aspect of this reflection that many, I don't think many get, is that, you know, if we organize, if we are, uh, I would say if we agree that organizing needs to have this kind of multi-scale variety you're talking about, mm -hmm. uh, and we agree that because essentially we're saying, we're seeing, uh, or we're saying, sorry, that At the moment, we are just organizing at one scale, basically, that is the industrial scale. Mm -hmm. and, the, and then, uh, and thus, I would say we are failing because we cannot deal with the, with the, the other elements that, uh, and processes that are not at the scale of the industrialism. Then, uh, if we just, uh, I would say, accept that reality and we start to organize at a more embedded and cooperative way, like you say, we have to agree and we have to accept the fact that we just have to uh, leave this idea of industrial control. That is just an illusion, right? That we cannot mm -hmm. control. We can have crashes, we can have collapses at this, uh, sure. this various scale. So we have to have this responsibility to organize Sure. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think the, the sort of industrial mindset that we can control everything <laughs> obviously has its limits. I mean, it, it seems to derive from, you know, the advancements in physics and sort of like Laplacian determinism, the idea that if only you could just measure the position and velocity of every particle in the universe, then the future would be entirely deterministic and predictable, right? And then, you know, we had this sort of quantum revolution where we realized there, there may not even be a defined Phys, uh, you know, position and velocity for every particle in the universe, let alone our ability to measure it. And, you know, and, and physics has been sort of reckoning with that revolution ever since. But it, that conception hasn't quite, you know, percolated into the rest of, of society and our consciousness. And there still is, you know, this very strong conception that, oh, we can, we can control things and we can have large, you know, institutions of experts and technocrats who understand the whole economy and can, you know, by manipulating interest rates or whatever can, uh, can solve all our problems, right? It's, it's obviously ridiculous. And so there's, you know, there's a, a kind of complexity theory, complexity science that that is critical here to appreciating and, and, and understanding. And that recognition actually of the sort of complex nature of reality and, and the complexity that, that is everywhere also forces you into a more uh, localist approach because, you know, you realize that the best you can do is kind of tinker and, and, you know, experiment at a local scale and build on your wins 
and you know and and only take risks that sort of won't be catastrophic right so if the if it doesn't pay off then that's fine you, you can sort of st uh, start again but it won't you know significantly um, set you back whereas if you do things at a very large scale you're potentially taking much bigger catastrophic risks and it's much harder to control things and measure things and and actually process information about the real world so that kind of complexity oriented thinking which you know physics has been very well aware of since the early 20th century and it percolated into you know ecology and certain other kinds of thinking and now there's you know a broad discipline of complexity science and you have things like the santa fe institute and 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 this kind of stuff but it you know it hasn't quite got into the mainstream let's say of economics and political economics and and the way we think about structuring society more more broadly so i, I definitely think that that's important and that's also had a, a pretty significant influence on on my own thinking yeah, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on some things that might seem a bit like uh, contradictions. I don't know. I mean, that's more or less what I, I want to ask. Like, cool. um, I totally understand this uh, multi-scalar view and how, you know, your your community computer, uh, it, which is how you, you framed sort of the blockchain, can help to enable that uh, local scale, let's say the community scale uh, of organizing in order to respond to signals and so on. But do you see a risk also that this is very, also quite technocratic in a way? Like, are we then oh, sure. sort of building protocols and, and things that are too strict? Or, or, you know, how do you see that seeming paradox? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's a great question. I sort of, I didn't connect back to the, to the Cosmos thesis. And, you know, that, that's exactly right. The idea is that we should be able to build community computers at every scale from, from the hyperlocal to the global. Uh, and the same technology can kind of can kind of work at least you know sets of the technology, but there is a real risk, and we do see it. You know, I think there is a lot of uh, technocratic thinking in the blockchain space, as as much as they you know claim to be inspired by some of these ideals. And in, in, in the way that you know certain blockchain designs are approached, they are very you know they they try to be sort of globalist and and you know one one size fits all kind of solutions to some extent. Uh, and there is a lot of risk that, you know, the, the people building these systems are only thinking about the technology and not thinking enough about, you know, the social political reality that all the stuff is embedded in. And so I think that's that's actually probably one of the bigger risks to the space today is that people aren't aren't really thinking enough about the sociological aspects of everything and are, are a little bit too prescriptive about how things should be. And, you know, the, you know, they're doing the, let's say the crypto economic research and trying to figure out, oh, exactly how the system should be structured for, you know, to work for a global censorship resistant ledger. And that'll be sufficient for all, you know, without really finding out what, you know, people on the ground might, might actually need to benefit from these things. Right. And so this is a, a direction that, you know, that we're hoping to push in a, a little bit more to actually trying to understand, you know, what communities at different scales actually need beyond, you know, what, what we might think they need and, and, and try to start building uh, towards that. Or at the very least, you know, part of the part of the goal of, of Cosmos was to empower people to be able to build the systems themselves, right, to make the technology as accessible and general purpose and unopinionated as possible to enable any community to start to adopt it and, and to build whatever works for them without imposing any kind of uh, political economic, you know, structure on top of them, other than the idea that they should be sovereign over their own, say, political economy, right? Yeah, and I think uh, you also mentioned in some of your writing that, uh, you know, one problem that you have seen in some political theories is the com uh, that labor and land is seen as commodities. So maybe this also links to what you, you sort of get to a little bit, that everything cannot be programmed and in a way turned into 
yeah, an algorithm or like a, a code or something like that. Absolutely. Last year, I read Carl Polanyi's book, The Great Transformation, which is probably one of the greatest books I've ever read and, and has a uh, has had a significant influence on me since and, and sort of, you know, aligned with or helped synthesize a lot of sort of prior ideas, you know, because it has a very strong historical element to it and, and basically explains the great transformation that took place more or less over the course or, or leading up to the Industrial Revolution, where these these factors of production, you know, land, labor and, and capital or, or money essentially became commoditized and you know, that these things aren't actually commodities, right? Commodities are things that are produced for sale on the market and land was not produced for sale on the market and neither was, you know, uh, human labor. I mean, that, that's like the essence of, of human activity, right? That That's uh, something kind of sacred that, that wasn't produced for sale. And, and then same with money. Money is a tool for coordinating and, and for exchange. It's also not a commodity, but over, you know, a sequence of really, uh, you know, political events over over a few hundred years, each of these things was both in, you know, theory and in law, effectively uh, commoditized. And, you know, we've had the last couple hundred years of, of market society since where, where we still, you know, propagate the, these conceptions of, of what Polanyi called the fictitious commodities. And I really like that, that framing. And, and there is a real risk that, you know, um, and you see it in, in sort of blockchain communities that we're continuing with this kind of hyper commodification. And, you know, it's increasingly important that, that we take stock of, of that and sort of look back to, you know, how do we actually respect these things for what they are and develop, you know, proper sociological theories of land and of labor and, and of capital and money uh, and, and even energy. I like to include energy as a factor of production, kind of distinct from everything else. And, and you know, understand the, the real, like the reality of them, the physical and, and social reality of them and build our, you know, economic system on top of that rather than just assuming everything is a commodity, everything has a price in a single unit of account and go from there. And, and you know, that was a, a, a major contribution, I think, that, that Polanyi has made. And we're seeing, you know, various movements to decommodify these, these factors of production. You have things like, you know, land trust trying to take land off the market permanently. And you have things like cooperatives, which, which I'm sure we'll talk about here, trying to you know effectively decommodify labor a little bit more and, and re-empower labor as sort of owners over the, over the means of production. And, and, and Polanyi was, was also a um, sort of huge fan of that kind of approach. And uh, there are some you know approaches to decommodify money, but uh, <laughs> that one's a little bit a little bit harder, I think, to to articulate or, or think about. But um, yeah, right. Well, well. Um, one thing I was I was thinking about while you were talking is uh, you spoke a lot about commodification, right? And uh, um, I was thinking that maybe uh, we can d dive a little bit into the difference between standardization and commoditization, right? Mm. Because Cosmos, to some extent, is doing standardization in a way that allows you to uh, interoperate, right, between different economic systems, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, since a while now, that if there is the need potentially to uh, raise the bar in terms of standardizing, right, in terms of, uh, in the interest of uh, cooperation, essentially, right, in the interest of not competing, because commoditization is essentially standardizing through competition and mm destructive behavior approaches, let's say, right? Mm -hmm. you, you make a commodity because you, you ask basically everybody to compete. Yeah. You know, everybody to compete into a standard, right? So I was thinking that uh, maybe uh, we will need in the coming years to standardize also the application and, and, and protocol layer uh, when it comes to the ontologies and taxonomies we use to describe how we trade, for example, or how we produce certain stuff, like right? mm -hmm. agriculture or, or education or whatever. 
so I'm wondering if you see this kind of evolution from the Cosmos SDK to integrate a higher level of the stack to, for example, let uh, two schools in two different two education systems in two different provinces, whatever, or, or bioregions to yeah. interoperate with each other, or two different uh, energy producers, right, yeah. to interoperate with each other in some ways in terms of knowledge or, or I don't know, abstraction of uh, whatever, right? Yeah, that's, that's so there's a few things there. One is this, you know, what is the relationship between standardization and commodification? I think that's a really interesting um, really interesting question. Offhand, it might have something to do with the dimensionality of the standards. And, and I guess, you know, one way to think about commodification is sort of like you were saying, it, it's standardization on, you know, competing on price, right? And that's it. It's very low dimensional. There's a single dimension uh, for the standard, which is just like the price of the thing, um, or you think of it, you know, as the cost of the thing. And, and, and competing over that and, and you know, everything uh, gets standardized in terms of, well, it's all just for sale on the market. That is the standard. And that's um, that's commodification. But of course, you can have higher dimensional standards as well that aren't just about selling things on the market, but are about other kinds of uh, more maybe more complex activities. So, so that's that's on standardization commodification. So I wouldn't say that all kind of standardization is is commodification per se, in the, at least insofar as the commodification we're talking about here is about, you know, the definition of a commodity as something produced for sale on the market. Just because you're standardizing something doesn't mean, you know, it's, it's strictly about it being for sale on the market. And I think actually, you know, the internet protocols are a pretty good example of something, you know, where, where standards proceeded, not in order to make the thing necessarily for sale on the market, but to just to enable some new kind of activity or, or coordination, right? And that's really what, what, what Cosmos has been focusing on with, with kind of IBC and this, uh, that's the inner blockchain communication protocol that is the heart of the interoperability between Cosmos blockchains, but not just Cosmos, it actually works um, more generally speaking, and, and we're seeing some other projects start to start to adopt it. But you can certainly build higher level standards as well on top of sort of at the application layer, like you're suggesting between schools or, or, or energy, that's obviously going to be a lot more complex and would require, you know, better models of, of education and, and energy use and, and, and things like this. And that's not something we've started thinking about yet. Yeah. What would you say that uh... Cosmos is actually standardizing. It's standardizing, I want to say light clients, but what that means to, to your audience is it's standardizing the way that you read data from a community computer, uh, that you read and write data to and from a community computer, right? And, and that standard allows you to create connections between these two computers so that you can uh, write kind of arbitrary data to and from each side and, and have it be understood with the minimal amount of uh, opinions imposed about the structure of the of the computers on either side, right? So in the same way, the internet standardized reading and writing between two different physical machines, right? So my computer and your computer can sort of talk to each other over the standard protocols of the internet. Uh, Cosmos is doing something similar, standardizing a communication protocol between two blockchains, community computers, whatever you want to call them. So, uh, and the way it does that is by abstracting over the underlying consensus algorithm so that it doesn't matter what kind of, uh, you know, consensus you're using as long as it can sort of fit into this standardized interface and provide, you know, some assertion, some guarantees about what was written to the blockchain, then it can be read by another blockchain and, 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 and vice versa. So that's, that's the kind of essence of the standard is this um, ability to read and write between two potentially different chains running different applications or even different consensus algorithms. So it's very much, you know, it's al almost directly analogous to uh, TCP, which is the, the sort of core internet protocol, transmission control protocol, 
that allows us to communicate sort of over the internet and standardize the, the reading and writing between two different machines. So we, you know, IBC standardizes reading and writing between two different blockchains. Right. I was thinking about, let's say, the relationship with with uh, with localism. All right. So that's uh, something that I think uh, uh, I am interested to explore in the lack of other filters that I can use to think about this transition actually happening. Mm. Because we, we are talking about this now, you know, since decades. And we're writing, we're making tools and so on. But still, most of what we consume and most of what we, well, actually, we don't produce much uh, in, in general. Uh, our, everything that we consume basically comes from the industrial behemoths. And people do not care, do not engage with uh, economics of fundamentals. They're not active on a local scale. So... What is your thinking about that? So how, how does this actually happen? <laughs> That's a good question. I think it's going to take decades to get there. I mean, uh, it's possible that there will be a series of shocks to the system that will sort of motivate us to get there sooner. And, and potentially COVID and, and this pandemic was one where it really just highlighted the the sheer fragility of the global supply chain. And it's sort of prompting you know a lot of countries to rethink their ability to supply for themselves the necessities um, that are required to keep you know humans alive and, and, and civilization afloat and to not depend on you know uh, remote potential potentially adversarial uh, jurisdictions to provide those things so it could just be that it requires a series of of shocks to get us there and that's the sort of you know maybe that's that's the kind of coercive path I think there, there, there may be another path, which, which we're hoping to, to apply some pressure on, which is more incentive oriented. So we're exploring, we're starting to explore the relationship between the monetary system and the supply chain. Maybe people don't really think about these things as sort of part of the same system. Obviously, you use money to lubricate, you know, trade in, in the global supply chain. But the way I think about, about money in the monetary system, it, it's like an, a representation of the supply chain, of the sort of resource usage patterns and so on. And so the, you know, the international hyper-globalized structure of the monetary system sort of reflects the same thing in, in, in the supply chain. And so if we can find ways to support more local forms of money and more local uh, monetary systems, we may actually be able to directly encourage and incentivize more local supply chains as well. And so, you know, there's a little bit, maybe it's a little bit of a chicken and egg, but um, there could be ways to actually, uh, to, to actually motivate that, that aren't just purely through the kind of coercive action of, mm. you know, responding to a shock, but are more through a kind of voluntary, uh, more uh, preemptive, let's say. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I don't want to think about this happening uh, as an effect of a shock, because really, I don't think we can organize easily a <laughs> blockchain-based yeah. yeah. system for education, for example, through, through a shock. Yeah. So I'm, I'm much more interested uh, into this kind of, natural transition right in terms of uh, um, peaceful let's say transition yeah and uh, of course uh, you know we know that uh, what the hell is going to happen with with the climate and and so on but hopefully we can still manage to to have this transition uh, inside the system so i guess uh, it also we and i think this is part of uh, uh, what we are uh, we are also practicing there, there is some kind of uh, personal level to this right mm -hmm. and you you quote wendell berry if i'm wrong sometimes right i've heard you speak about that if i'm not wrong uh, mm -hmm. but in general we 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 quoted uh, several times uh, his position around uh, the importance of the individual in the transition so you cannot delegate all this transition to an organizing model 
Mm-hmm. It's not that we we adopt an organizing model and we change. You know? So it's really about also what we expect from the economy and what kind of uh, uh, posture we, we take uh, uh, t- towards the economy. So are we actually there to run our schools? Yeah. It's boring. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's right. We certainly can't delegate this. At the same time, you know, I just want to be cautious of the... You know, there's almost this like gaslighting going on where where you know people make it about you know oh you have to recycle and uh, you know it's all about this individual action to like you know protect or prevent climate change when in reality it's really about what the inst- the much larger institutions and, and companies and multinationals are up to you know I saw a funny tweet the other day that was just like a map of all the private jets that were leaving the Super Bowl and flying back to wherever they're they were going in the US and then the caption was remember to recycle right just like poking fun at the idea that you know ind- individuals recycling could have any kind of impact in a world that structurally isn't changing right um, and so the, so the question is well how does it, how do individuals participate in that kind of structural change and and i think that's actually really really important i think that's what you're getting at like for instance you know looking at starting with the schools and, and finding ways to, you know, change the structure of, of schooling and, and education and, you know, how, how kids are brought up. And there are certainly um, ways for people to, to participate in that sort of more locally. And, you know, that's, that's certainly important. But it also feels like it will simultaneously require uh, larger institutional changes. You know, things like, you know, more sovereignty for smaller jurisdictions, more sort of bioregional organization, and probably a revolution in the monetary system. Uh, to be frank, if we continue with with you know the structure of money the way it is and, and sort of the patterns of development that it facilitates, um, I'm not sure there's going to be any hope. Uh, you know, no matter no matter how much clean energy you create. Yeah. So I mean, so certainly not just as consuming more ethically. It's much more about uh, enter- enterprising, right? Yeah, exactly. Like you know, there you know some people think like, oh, we can solve climate change by like moving to clean energy and all this stuff, but. Right, but I don't think that actually solves the problem. It just sort of maybe maybe punts it down the road a little bit because you're still engaged in the same kinds of patterns of production and consumption that are you know damaging the biosphere. And it's not just about the amount of carbon we emit; it's about the way we actually organize ourselves on the surface of the planet. You know, the destruction to natural habitats, uh, all these you know, and and not just nature, but also our social relations. Right, we're also corrupting our our souls in a way um, by by. Con- continuing to perpetuate the the kind of utopian sort of market society, as, as Polanyi would call it, that, that were sort of uh, the legacy of the last few hundred years. So we actually need to change something about the structure, the organization of, let's say, the monetary or economic system to not just be targeting, you know, that infinite exponential growth of whatever three, five, seven percent GDP growth every year, but actually looking at, and it's not necessarily about degrowth either, it's about sustainable growth, right? And, and again, getting back to that sort of theoretical uh, ecology, right? It, it's about finding ways to, to keep energy flowing in cycles, right? And, and to grow through increasing the number of closed loops that are sort of, you know, compounding and, and, and feeding each other. And there are ways to do that in economics and, and even directly through the monetary system by encouraging, you know, closed loops of credit clearing, right? And, and so, you know, this is something that, that we're starting to explore and, and hoping to use sort of the cosmos technology for, if I owe you money and you owe Stina money and, and, and she owes me money, none of us need to actually come up with any cash. We can just clear all those obligations just by servicing the fact that there is a closed loop there, right? And so by, by looking for those closed loops all throughout society and potentially finding ways to incentivize them, you know, we can actually start maybe uh, to make some progress towards a sort of more circular uh, economics, let's say. Uh, and that, those are the kind of structural changes, I think, that, that are necessary to actually 
um, deal with some of these more existential issues. That's um, super interesting. And if we go down a scale and like come back to your organization, and I mean, we know that you are uh, very much into cooperativism and, you know, as a way to sort of embed activities and probably creating a bit of those closed loops that you were talking about. Um, So do you want to talk a little bit about your experience with building informal systems and how are you thinking, you know, at that scale, how do you build an alternative to the existing system, let's say? Yes, I would love to. So I have been, uh, let's say, disenfranchised with the standard models to building building companies for quite some time now, you know, especially the, the, the kind of gap between the shareholders and the operations. Not only do you have like the principal agent problems, which lots of people love, love to write about and talk about, but there's just like a, a fundamental mismatch in uh, representing the stakeholders in the state machine of the corporation, right? So I like to talk a lot about um, at this talk on, on stakeholders and, and state machines where, you know, uh, you can look at sort of the history of humanity and look at the ways that stakeholders over time, you know, people who have stake in, in whatever system are always vying for better representation in the sort of, in the state machine, in the rule set, in the, you know, in the laws and in the institutions that represent them. And, and the corporation is the, you know, dominant way that we organize society today and the major stakeholders of you know the activity of a corporation, the employees, the the vendors, the the clients, the environment, you know other other social uh, organizations and and so on, have virtually no representation whatsoever in the actual structure of the corporation in like the legal um, in the legal state machine. It's all just about really the shareholders, right? And, and the shareholders don't even have anything to do with the operations. They're just you know some external you know financialized uh, abstraction that that provided some capital. And that's it. And and somehow everything is beholden to that. And so that obviously seems like a very chronic misrepresentation of of reality. And from the perspective of, you know, my my views on sustainability being about, uh, you know, accurate representation of, of reality in order to be sustainable, in order for, you know, our society to become sustainable, we need organizations that better reflect and represent uh, the actual stakeholders and the actual world around them. And of course, one of the most if not the most important stakeholders in an organization are its employees. Um, and, and the fact that, you know, employees have so little representation in the sort of structure and ownership of, of the companies seems like uh, a, a huge issue. And, you know, obviously in, you know, tech companies and, and startups, they, there's like uh, employee stock options and all this stuff, but it's usually a very small percentage of the company. And, uh, options don't even have voting rights, and you know, often the founders and the investors will will maintain a, a massive amount of of control, if not all of it. And and so you really still don't, you know, while employees might get some exposure to the upside, the financial upside, they still don't aren't really represented in the sort of ownership uh, control structure of the company. And and this is where where co-ops come in, especially worker co-ops, which is the kind of you know, there's different kinds of cooperatives, but worker co-ops is really what what we're talking about here, where they directly represent the interest the controlling interests of the employees in, in the structure of, of the entity of the corporation, right? So each employee effectively gets one vote and, and therefore has the right to, um, you know, elect board of directors and, and which appoints the CEO and, and, and so on. So, you know, for, for years, I have been frustrated with um, corporate structures and with Silicon Valley and all this. It all feels tied into this, like, hyper-growth, you know, um, 
unsustainable exponential growth and sort of lack of representation and all, all these issues and sort of wanted something better and, you know, always kind of knew about or was interested in co-ops and felt that, you know, one day we would we would have the opportunity to create a new company and, and it would be a cooperative. And we had that opportunity with Informal Systems a couple of years ago, which spun out of the Interchain Foundation, which was the, the nonprofit that was set up to fund Cosmos development. And so we structured Informal as a workers' cooperative, essentially, where each employee, after they've been with the company for for nine months, you know, that's the, the gestation period <laughs> for human beings. Uh, so after they've been with the company for nine months, they are issued one, one membership share. We call it the informal share. Um, and that gives them, you know, one vote in the governance of the corporation in the sort of major corporate decisions. And I may be the CEO of the company, but I am effectively serving the stakeholders who are the, the workers, the employees. And so I remind them all the time that, you know, they can, whenever they want, call a shareholders meeting where they each have one vote and, you know, appoint a new board, uh, elect a new board and appoint a new CEO. And, and we've even joked about uh, running what I call a fire drill, where I would fire everyone. But because everyone has a notice period within the notice period, they would call a shareholders meeting and, uh, and replace the board and, you know, elect a new CEO and rehire themselves. And if they wanted to reelect me, they could, but, right. you know, so that's, uh, that's kind of the, the power that should embed in the, in the workers, but in, you know, almost all organizations in society today don't. Do, do you have uh, many remote uh, workers or they are mostly co-located? No, everyone, it's, uh, it's pretty remote. We're sort of all over the world and Toronto, Vienna, Lausanne, Berlin, um, the UK, the US, yeah, Serbia, all over. That's interesting. And what are the strategic benefits that, uh, Uh, informal system gives to the uh, members, to the workers. So in terms of uh, beyond, uh, I would say, um, salary and equity. The fact that the, each individual is a full voting, you know, a, in a uniform way, owner and controller of the organization changes the, the flavor and the cultures and the guarantees that the organization provides, right? And what we're trying to do is build an organization that, that someone could be happy at for the rest of their lives, right? That is like uh, where, where they don't feel like they have to jump around again. It, it's a place that is there for them, right? It prioritizes the people. Um, it, it, it's there to really take care of and look after people and, and make sure they're sort of getting as much value out of the organization as the organization is getting out of them. And, and at the end of the day, they retain control. And while that control may, you know, it's not exercised day to day. It's not like every day the whole company votes on everything we do. In fact, it may not have to be exercised at all. And that's kind of the, you know, the magic of rules and, and the legal system is just like having a credible threat might mean you never have to actually use it, right? And, you know, blockchains take advantage of this kind of thing and, and so does the legal system in general, right? If there's a rule in the contract, you chance, the, there's higher chances that you won't violate the contract because then, you know, you'll end up in court and, 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 and so on, right? And so just having that sort of in place provides additional guarantees and, and, and comfort to Um, to employees that make it sort of a safer space for the long term that, that they feel like they can, um, they can depend on. What, what is your decision-making system? So how do you take this? Do you, uh, do you use a sociocratic decision-making consent? Uh, what is your, your style? Do you, use, do you have internal circle? How are the teams structured? Yeah, so th there's, a lot, um, there's a lot here. Uh, we don't quite have a, a name for, um, let's say, decision-making that, that fits a common mold. We have been adopting what we're calling uh, workflow or, you know, this, this sort of comes out of the work of Fernando Flores's Conversations for Action. And we just put up a guide at workflow.informal.systems that describes the approach we're taking to organizing ourselves internally. And this is really about recognizing 
that almost everything that happens in an organization can be boiled down to a promise, what you can call a promise between two individuals. And a promise is really nothing more than a consensual expectation, right? If you have an expectation of someone and they consent to that expectation, effectively there's a promise there, right? That someone is making a promise about how they're gonna behave. And, and the idea behind this sort of workflow language, and we call it a language rather than a model because it's not really prescriptive. It's not like a model of how your organization should run. It's a language for, for describing work and for understanding uh, each other and, and the work you're doing together and really for, um, you know, for describing and talking about promises and accountability. That's, that's really the heart of it. And by thinking about everything in terms of workflow, you can sort of get a better understanding of uh, what promises people are making to each other over what time horizons and of what scope, right? And so you can start to understand that, you know, everyone in the company is making promises of, of different scope, broader or narrower scope, and of over different time horizons, smaller or, or larger. And the whole thing is a big negotiation between consenting adults on what kind of work they want to do and what kind of work can be done, you know, with the constraints of essentially, uh, you know, whatever the financial constraints are are for the company, the budget, and and, and so on. And so, we think about all that structure, you know, less about sort of a particular decision-making framework and more about the kinds of negotiations that are happening and the results that people are promising to each other of, you know, varying scopes and varying time horizons. How do you manage uh, hiring? How do we manage hiring? <laughs> well, uh, what do you mean? Or in what, you know, what level of detail? I yeah. mean, if somebody takes decision to hire someone else. Uh, in general, I think the, the hiring question is, you can, I, can, I can also ask, how do you manage budgets? You know, the, who decides the important things? Is it uh, an informal structure? Is it a formal one? Do you have uh, attached P&L to these decisions? How do you approach it? Yeah, somewhat. So we do actually, you know, for some decisions, we do adopt uh, the RAID model, R-A-I-D, Right. Uh, where, you know, different roles, different different people in the company have different sort of decision authorities for a particular decision. And, you know, RAID is, I, I think, quite quite popular and standard. You know, R is recommend, A is approve, I is input, and, and D is final decide. And so, for instance, in hiring, I actually don't have any decision authorities, um, even though I'm CEO of the company. So I can't, you know, according to our internal logic, force a hire or veto a hire because I actually haven't been granted any authorities in the hiring process, right? The authorities are granted right. to whatever the participants are. There might be a hiring manager and interviewers and, 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 and so on. Um, so we, we do try to use, try to use the raid, but, uh, in, in certain aspects, but as much as possible, we try to boil it down to the promises people are making, right? And, and, you know, if you're making uh, a certain kind of promise about, you know, delivering certain results for the organization in order to execute effectively on that promise requires certain decision authorities that sort of come with making that um, with making that promise. And effectively, as the CEO, I am making the longest term and the broadest scope promise to all of the employees who are my, um, you know, who I'm accountable to effectively. And thus everything can kind of flow out from that. Um, from that basic relationship, right? But distribution of decision making and, and roles, let's say, are they by consent? Uh, how do you set these things? Uh, is that somebody that decides? Or I'm just curious, sir, right? Just because it seems a fascinating organization, so I want to understand as much as possible also for our listeners. Yeah, so it's not all um, formalized. So a lot of it we're still kind of discovering as we go. Right. And, you know, we're, we're a bunch of good natured, well intentioned, high trust. People, so it's sort of working uh, so far. There are things we have been we have been trying to formalize to you know preempt any kind of um, serious 
contention, but you, you know, it's some, you, you always need to navigate the sort of boundary or the tension between formal and informal systems, hence the name of the company, Informal Systems. But we, we write about it. So, so we put up this guide, workflow.informal.systems. I encourage you to check that out because that, um, that so far has the most detail we've published about how we're working internally. And we'll keep updating that as we learn and, and, and discover and sort of roll out more more, say, processes and, and organizational structure and so on. I mean, Ethan, it was a very long, uh, very deep, very fruitful, very interesting conversation, I must say. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Um, I, I wanted to give you just a chance to share a little bit about where people can find your work and uh, if they can reach out for what reasons. I mean, uh, that's now the moment to share, uh, let's say, how to uh, get in touch. Yeah, absolutely. So we are online, informal.systems is the website. Uh, and you can check out our blog there where, where we publish about what we're up to and about our, our organizational structure. We're also on Twitter, Informal Inc. Of course, there's there's the, the whole Cosmos project. That's cosmos.network. And then myself, I blog about political economy, ebuckman.github.io. I'm also on very active on Twitter at uh, Buckmanster, B-U-C-H. And you can get, generally get in touch with me there. And a, a lot of what we've talked about, I've, I've blogged about, and you know, there's a lot of writing about uh, Bitcoin and political economy and local money and all this kind of good stuff. Yes, yes. I really encourage people to do that because Ethan is one of, of the uh, most interesting thinkers who have been uh, and doers that we have been in touch uh, lately. So thank you so much, Ethan, again. Uh, thank you, Sina, for, for, stay, for staying with us tonight. And to our listeners, uh, catch up soon. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Boundless Conversations podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media, review our show on any major distribution platform, and don't forget to subscribe for new episode releases. Stay tuned on Boundless.io for our latest news and updates. There, you can also find our free design tools, opportunities to learn how to use them, and connect directly with us to use our help in designing your platform strategies and organizational transformations for the age of ecosystems. We also want to thank Walter Mobiliot Leo Sound for the ad hoc music.